You're listening to the Traverse Theatre's Open Submissions Workshop number three, Getting Started, with playwright Francis Poet. Hello, uh, welcome to my home. The Travers Theatre have asked me um, to do a workshop for you um, and this is the first time I've done one uh, in this environment rather than uh, toddling off on the train uh, to come and be in the room with all of you. Um, so uh, yeah, I miss seeing your faces but I hope you're seeing and hearing me clearly. Uh, my name's Frances Poet um, and I have been writing... Since about uh, 2011, um, I was on maternity leave with my son and um, that's when I started uh, started writing. Uh, before that, I'd worked for a decade as um, in script development. So I was a script reader, I was a literary manager, um, I moved up to Scotland and was the literary manager of the National Theatre of Scotland. And I was lucky enough to work with some uh, amazing playwrights and I had 10 years to learn about their process um, and lots of different processes and uh, how people approached an idea and how they developed an idea and so I learned loads from that um, so today I'm going to be talking quite a lot about uh, my process which is not something I normally do I normally like to come to workshops and bring um, plays brilliant extracts of work by plays that I think are um, are you know like gods I'm not worthy um, and uh, and, and just share them with people and talk about them. But the Travers have asked me to focus on my writing today. Um, and I'm reassuring myself with the thought that um, uh, since it's online, if it's terribly self-indulgent, you can just turn the computer off. Whereas it would be quite rude and difficult uh, in terms of etiquette to walk out of a workshop. So hopefully it won't be. Um, so yeah, and, and the Travers asked me to write about getting started. So that's what we're gonna look at today. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Uh, and it, I'll, you know, I'll be honest, I find it really hard and I, it doesn't really get easier. In fact, if anything, I've got a little bit superstitious about, uh, the act of starting a play. So, um, I'm not one of those writers who has an idea and goes, oh, I'll just write a little scene of that mm, yeah next day write, write a little bit more not that at all I have an idea and I live with it for ages and I am scared of that first moment that I will start start typing start um trying to write it and I delay that moment as long as I can um so I, I've, I don't know I was thinking about it before doing this and it and it, it's um I think where it comes from is a fear, a bit like uh, a book that you start and then get distracted and don't finish. Those are the books on my guilt pile. I never really go back to them. Even if I was loving reading them, they it's so hard to sort of get back to the headspace you're in when you were reading it and they, and they lie abandoned. And I think that's something I get frightened of about plays, that if I start and I'm not 100% ready to start, they'll end up languishing in a bottom drawer. And um, and before I've started, there's this sort of magic quality to them, the, the potential of the idea that I haven't spoiled yet. So what I tend to do is I do a lot of thinking, I do a lot of research if it's, if it's an idea that needs a lot of research and I do not write a word. And then when I am ready, almost like a boxer who's been pumped up to the sort of 
to the, the highest level and gets into the boxing ring, you know, when I'm when I'm at that point and I'm just raring to write it, I write it as quickly as I can. Um, and over the last five years, my um, sort of rhythm of that, I've often um, been lucky enough and um, to find an opportunity to go to beautiful Cove Park near Helensborough and have a hire a pod for a week. And so I turn up at Cove Park, raring to write the idea, and then I write it as quickly as I can. Um, and it is possible to write that play in a week, sometimes less than that, sometimes, you know, two, three days. Um, then, can you write a play in that short time? Well, you can, yeah, no, <laughs> no, because you've done months of thinking and then months, if not years, of rewriting after that point. But that's what... I found is that I've wanted to write the the play itself very intensively. Um, Steve Canny said something. I was um, lucky enough to be one of the uh, writers, one of fifty writers that were attached to the Travis for their fiftieth year, and uh, got lots of workshops through that. And Steve Canny came and he talked about writing that real writing was when you're thinking and walking and thinking and planning and talking about it. That's the real writing. And when you're sitting at the computer, you're just typing it out. And then the real writing kicks in again when you start rewriting and, and working out where it's working, where it's not. And that I find really helpful. I think um, that's what I do when I go to Cove Park. I type it out um, and the real writing has come before and it'll come after. Um, so that's a very sort of particular way of doing it. And I haven't, uh, it's not something I particularly know a lot of other writers do. That's my way of doing it. Um, but when uh, when I talk, you might hear a few times, there's a kind of recurring theme, which is me writing at Cove Park. Thank you, Cove Park. So I write in that way for, and have written in that way for most of the sort of bigger projects I've done. But when I was thinking about getting started, I realized that even within that, there were very different ways that I approach different plays. And that's what I want to share with you today. Maggie May, starting with character. So I want to start by talking about Maggie May, um, which hurts my heart a little bit uh, to when I hold it because um, it had three previews and it never had its press night because of COVID-19. So um, it's a sort of bittersweet thing for me, Maggie May. So Maggie May was a play um, that I wrote for Leeds Playhouse. Um, it actually never got to Leeds Playhouse, which is the heartbreaking thing. I'm very much hoping that it will. But it opened at uh, the lovely Queen's Theatre Hornchurch in Essex. Um, so... Leeds Playhouse do some extraordinary work with people living with dementia. And uh, a lot of that work is led by this wonderful woman called Nikki Taylor, who is their theatre and dementia research, research associate. They wanted to do something that was about dementia that could be enjoyed by people living with dementia. They have pioneered dementia-friendly performances at Leeds Playhouse, and, um, and that's what they wanted this to be. So um, the project was, the brief was, to tell a more positive side of uh, the dementia diagnosis, which is quite a daunting brief. And um, my dad had dementia and it wasn't a particularly positive experience. So it did feel a, a very daunting brief indeed. Um, I started off, I went for a week and I met all of these amazing people that are engaging with Leeds Playhouse. And by the end of the week, it wasn't so daunting because I saw amazing people contributing 
huge amounts to that theatre. Um, and I realised that that uh, dementia diagnosis was absolutely uh, a, a new chapter in life, but not the end that we all... Um, that we might if we've not lived through it or if we've lived through it in a difficult way experience that some people are living very well with that dementia diagnosis so um so I'd done the research I'd met lots of amazing people but I was still though I could see uh I could see the truth and the honesty in what I I was being asked to explore I was still really daunted by the form that the play was going to have to take because this was a play that it was to tick a lot of boxes, not in a um, tokenistic way, but it had a lot that it was, uh, it was an ambitious project, a lot it was trying to achieve. It was to be watched and enjoyed by people living with dementia, by their supporters and by any audience, any audience who wanted to come and, and, and see that story. I booked a week in Cove Park, I'd done loads of research and thinking, and it was about two weeks to go. And one of the things, a new music was going to be important. And one of the things that people who work in dementia uh, care uh, are very clear about is uh, a kind of um, disappointment with people who um, deal with people living with dementia and sing wartime songs. That's the, the they're talking to the wrong generation. Um, and so that I'd, I'd, I'd known that very clearly. So one of the first things that I've not done for another character, but I found gloriously useful for this one is to go, OK, what age is my central character? What music was she listening to at a formative age? Um, and uh, I worked out that uh, that was about 1971. And one of the songs that came out that year was uh, Rod Stewart's Maggie May. And I, there was something about that title, about the song title that kind of stuck with me. Um, and, and actually, I think it has been used for theatre shows uh, in the past, you know, I don't know whether it was a Rod Stewart musical or something else, um, but for me it felt quite important. There was something in the potential of the May, Maggie May. Maggie May do anything she want. Maggie May be live a great life. Maggie May, there's something about the potential in that that felt really exciting. So now I knew uh, how old my character was, uh, which was slightly um, dictated by the brief because it was a celebrating age commission. So the character had to be over 60, but I didn't want to far over 60 because I wanted that sense of a life interrupted. So I knew her age, I knew her birth date, I knew what music she was listening to in her late teens and early 20s, and I knew that she was going to fall in love with her husband at that time and those songs were going to re be really important. I had an idea that they could sing songs to each other and that would be a really lovely way to include music that was absolutely integral to their, to their relationship. Um, that's what I had and I was it was two weeks before I went to Cove and I was worried I did I didn't know how this was gonna sort of come onto the page and I sat down and I decided I just wanted to know if I could hear Maggie's voice and I funnily enough I'm from Yorkshire grew up in Yorkshire um but my playwriting career has all happened in Scotland. So I, I've written play, I'm used to writing plays in a Scottish register. I've never written one in a Yorkshire uh, dialect. So I was partly sort of conscious of that. Um, uh, but 
I sat down and I started writing and I am not someone who is a massive believer in, uh, you know, the sort of JK Rowling, Harry Potter mythology that he was, you know, I think she was on a train and she just saw the boy vividly. I'm generally, when it comes to playwriting, a believer in hard graft. So my plays very much come from my head and my heart and a lot of hard work. But when I sat down to write Maggie's voice, she just was there. And and possibly that might have been having met such a lot of people or, and maybe she was a um, an amalgamation of all these people that I'd met. But actually, she's unlike any single person I met and she just felt herself and she was this very feisty, uh, you know, uh, jokey, uh, tough, tough woman who uses humour as a to protect herself and um, and is sort of irresistible. And from the first, from the moment I wrote that, I knew it was gonna be all right and I went to Cove Park and I blasted it. And actually in Cove Park, I was still terrified about this form question. And it wasn't until I got to the end of the play that I went, oh, okay, this is a thing. I think I've, I think I've achieved that form. There was a lot of work to do after that. Um, but, uh, but, I, but I, by the end of that first draft, I felt like I, I'd sort of, was delivering what I'd been asked to deliver. So um, in the first, um, the first development of the play, which was a reading as part of a festival, we had this amazing actress called Ethna Brown and she has been involved, she's played Maggie in every development since and in the production. And she's just, to me, synonymous, you know, she's interchangeable with, with Maggie now. Um, and she kindly uh, has recorded a Maggie's first speech so you can get a sense of, um, of how she sounded. And that first speech is very true to the bit where I just found her voice. Eyes send message to brain. Chink of light through the curtains. Morning. Who am I today? Sudden snort from the lump lying next to me. My husband. He doesn't snore, he snorts. These sudden panicked in through the nose that wake me from the deepest of sleeps. Not that I sleep much these days. I found him slumped in the bathroom. What's happened to you? He looks up at me, all confused and says something that sounds like, where's your domino? I don't know, love, but if it's childhood games you're on about, I reckon we should start by looking for your marbles. Where's your domino? Your husband's had a blockage. Don't talk to me about his blockage. I've been telling him for 40 years he should start his day with a bowl of old bran. Not a blockage of the bowel, Mrs Morris, the brain. I know about that and all. He's had a blockage about using washing machine our old marriage. Your husband's had a stroke. I know, love. And what drugs are you giving him to make him well again? Because you was all the medicine I've got. <laughs> that bloke of mine don't half pick his moments. Must have thought I were getting all the attention. The brilliant Ethna Brown. 
uh, doing a much better job than I would have done if I'd had to read it to you. Um, so I'm hoping now that a little subheading will appear on the screen saying um, starting with character. Um, so that I really did start with character for Maggie May and I think it's a really useful place to start. Um, and uh, I'd never done it before, but I think it was really useful. That was a really lovely way in. What what is this? What was this character listening to uh, as they were coming of age? Um, so a few things I find useful that I hope you can find useful. And it could be to start you off. It could be on a second draft when you're thinking, oh, I, I need to uh, find a bit more meat to this character. So when are they born? What are the crucial, I, you know, Wikipedia it, what are the crucial life events that will have impacted that on them at certain ages? Uh, you know, what was what was life like at nine? What was life like at 17? What was like, what was their 20s? Um, so I have a list of questions that you can jot down and and answer for your um, your protagonist. Now, I think I might have stolen these. I think um, I think someone gave me them in a workshop years and years ago uh, so apologies whoever gave me these I might have added some to myself some myself so name I think a name is very important um their age uh, and I think working out what that age means what does that age mean what what have they lived through it's one thing to say oh it's 56 yeah but what does that mean in relation to in to your age if you're 56 then uh, then you'll know what they lived through. But if you're 20 and you're writing 56, what, what does 56 mean in terms of historical context? Um, their relationship status, their occupation, where do they live? Where were they born? What's their relationship to their parents? Are they an introvert or an extrovert? What do they do for fun? What do they eat? Um, have they been in love? Who's their best friend? What secrets do they keep and from who? What frightens them? What's their finest hour? What was their worst moment? Um, how far have they travelled? What's their most humiliating moment? What's the thing they're most ashamed of? What's their dream? Um, and of course that is crucial for drama in terms of what their what what a character wants short term mid term long term what's what's their aspiration what do they want um uh yeah what do they want now in the near future what do they want before they die so some of those might be useful and some might not um and uh i i think you've got to be quite flexible with them you can sit and jot this down now as you you know as soon as this is finished sit and jot answers down for that and some of them just be off the top of your head and uh will land and go oh yeah that's useful others will have to change as you go along you know you might find um you might find that that thing of their their proudest moment will come out at a certain point in the play when you know that might be a kind of they take someone in their confidence and share that and what you've scribbled down at the beginning might turn out to be really important or you might find when you're writing that scene 
that um, it needs tweaking, that, that what you'd written here when you'd sketched, first sketched it, isn't half as resonant as it needs to be, um, and that now that you're writing it, you've got a sense of, um, of theme and, and how to really make that speech as resonant as possible. So I think you've got to be quite flexible with these choices you make, but I think it's really, um, it's the work an actor does, and as a playwright, you're having to do it for, for multiple characters. We, we're sort of doing the job of the actor, and it's why a, a workshop with actors is so brilliant because actors are so used to doing that work they'll ask the questions that you go oh damn I forgot that because I was so busy working on that character I'd forgotten that character um yeah so I think starting uh I think starting with um I think starting with character is a really uh strong way in to writing your play idea gut starting with theme going to talk about my play Gut now, which is the first full-length play I wrote, uh, though it didn't make it to the stage first. Adam pipped it to the post. Um, and last time we talked about starting with character. And if we can have a little subtitle now, it would be starting with theme. Uh, because Gut um, uh, wasn't written to brief. And the protagonists are very like me. They are um, my age, they're from my socioeconomic background, my level of education, and um, uh, at the time I was writing, uh, their pressing concern was my pressing concern, which was raising young children. So I didn't have any of the work that I had to do with Maggie May, that, that character work, that sort of place in the context of the age and the things that they would have lived through and, and their voice and all of those things. I, I, um, they were sort of my givens. It was a bit of a cheat. I was allowed to uh, write characters who, who were me and my friends, um, who I knew intimately. Um, so, but Gut was an idea, it was an ideas play really. And the idea, I wanted to explore the world and how we perceive the world, whether we think strangers are predominantly good or predominantly dangerous, and specifically in the context of parenting. And I wanted to explore the idea that could our, could we as parents in our efforts to protect our children actually cause them more harm than the perceived uh, sort of dangerous stranger of our imagination. So that was a uh, I, I knew that that's what it was exploring from the beginning. Maggie May, I, f um, I knew what the play had to do. It was quite a complicated brief. I didn't actually start finding out what M Maggie May was about until probably the second or third draft. Uh, and it was about communication, actually, Maggie May. Um, but Gut, I knew from the beginning what it was about. And um, so I started it very differently. It wasn't about finding voice. I didn't start at the beginning. The first thing I wrote was the scene in which... Uh, Maddie, the central protagonist, harm tells her husband that she has harmed her kid and she has done it out of a very profound uh, and uh, desperate belief that she is protecting him in doing so. Uh, and that's the first speech I wrote. I wrote it again. Gut was a play I wrote in Cove Park. Um, at that point, I had two young children. I had, I think I had one afternoon a week to write in. And that was not enough. And I, again, I wanted to write the play, but I was scared of starting when it would take me months to even be within sight of the end. And I... I um, went a begging to National Theatre of Scotland and George Aza Selinger, who's the literary manager there, and said, I just need some time to write. 
it was the end of the financial year. They gave me some money to go to Cove Park and I am ever grateful to them for it. So, um, but before I went to Cove Park, I wrote that scene, that, that horrible speech in which she tells her husband what she's done to the kid. And um, just like with finding Maggie's voice, it meant I was armed when I went to Cove Park. I knew it, it sort of became my North Star. I knew what I was hitting towards. My job then was to see how I could get her there. Um, all the way through the development, a lot of people talked about Maddie um, being someone that the play was about mental illness and it was never intended to be about mental illness. It was all, I always wanted Maddie to be an every woman, but for the grace of God, uh, every parent's desire to protect their kid could potentially take them there. If a perfect storm of events aligned, we could potentially get there. Um, I mean, uh, just to clarify, when I say I was writing from experience, I have never and would never do what Maddie did. Um, and and she does get herself into a place of madness to do that. Uh, but I wanted her to be, um, I wanted her to be, a parent. I wanted her to be a good parent and someone who got derailed by the events of the play. So once I'd written that scene, then when I went to Cove Park, it was about filling in the details uh, towards that and then the aftermath after that. And that speech never changed all that much. It, 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 the, the speech you read in the play text, the speech you would have seen if you'd seen it on stage. Um, and I've been lucky enough for that play to be produced quite a few times. So I've seen it in um, uh, in Quebec and I've seen it um, at Guildhall in a in a, a beautiful student production there. And I have was able to adapt it for radio. So I've encountered it a fair few times and that speech um, hasn't really changed. Um, so that um, is just another uh, approach. If you're writing a play that's very ideas heavy, you might want to, um, and and you have found a dramatic way to realise the central question of the play, and you know what that is, you might want to dive in with that. And then it's a kind of join the dots, the, the writing then. It, it, it becomes, as I say, your North Star to guide you in the writing of it. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, I had to do a lot of rewriting um, with gut to make it right. Um, uh, Maddie because I knew I was hitting this, I started her, I knew, she, I. it's like I knew too much where she was going when I was writing it. So um, she was, uh, the, the Maddie in the first draft in those early scenes was the Maddie, was already the Maddie she was going to become. And, I, and, and through some brilliant dramaturgy from a lot of amazing people, I was able to pull back on that, let Rory, her husband, react bigger than her in that, in the first scene, um, when they're told that um that their uh that Rory's mother has let a stranger take their kid to the to the toilet and that's the thing that derails them both but um by by realizing knowing where I was heading was dangerous on one level because it made me um flag it too soon with Maggie but um, with Maddie but in the rewriting I was able to retune that and and make it that Rory had a bigger reaction than uh, than Maddie initially so that Maddie's trajectory could uh be more surprising and and she could go on a bigger journey with it um yeah so starting with theme Adam starting with form so um Adam is another play that was written to brief um Cora Bissett asked me to come on board as writer she had met 
the wonderful Adam Kashmiri, the irresistible Adam Kashmiri, um, when he talked about his life and she'd said, she'd come up to him and said, look, I'd love to turn this into a piece of theatre. And she'd had this idea that she wanted to, um, to include a global uh, trans choir in this huge sort of moment in the play. So those were the things I had. I had Adam's life and I knew that it, there was this um, moment with the choir. And I met with Adam and he was incredibly generous as he is and talked a lot and I, and I wrote lots of notes and recorded him. Um, so, uh, like gut, but unlike Maggie Mae, I had I didn't need to do any character work. I had the character. I'd met him. He'd talked to me. I knew I knew intimate details of his life. Um, so uh, so we didn't. St there was no need to start with character work. Unlike gut, I didn't know what the question of um, Adam as a project would be. Um, in some ways, it was a it was a play. It was a piece of theatre. Uh, that was it was a storytelling piece of work of theatre it was to tell Adam's story rather than to scrutinize and to uh provoke debate um so um I also this is the one of the three I'm talking about that I didn't write in Cove Park um and that was because there was a huge ticking clock on writing Adam because Cora was pregnant and there was a development planned. It was a National Theatre of Scotland project, but there was a development planned in London at the National Theatre Studio. And it had to happen before Cora um, had her baby. So there was this very firm deadline, which wasn't very far away. So I didn't have the luxury of months of months of thinking about it and then booking a Cove Park and all of that. Um, so I had to just get the hell on with it. And um, so where I started with this one, was to just try and find, I didn't know what the tone was. I didn't know, uh, I didn't, I didn't know the form. And it's weird to think now um, uh, of it being any differently, working any differently than it, than it did, which was two Adams, Adam Kashmiri um, and a um, cis female actress playing a sort of a, an Egyptian Adam uh, played by Neshla Kaplan in the original production and Rahana MacDonald in the um, uh, in the remount, both glorious actresses. Um, and actually, uh, in this first draft, it, it was it had never been discussed that Adam would be would be playing himself. So so everything was different when I was writing it. But I actually was sort of resisting any sense of the binary. And my initial idea is that there would be three Adams, multiple Adams, and um, one would have a kind of, one would be a kind of Glasgow Adam and bring that element. One would be an Egyptian Adam. Uh, there'd be another Adam that was sort of science, very steeped in science. That might have been the Glasgow Adam. And uh, one that was... Um, really preoccupied with words and that was the Adam who um, played with this idea of the contronym which is a, a single word that can have two opposite meanings and um, uh, and that became quite a, a big thing for the play this development of this idea that Adam can't remember the name of it but uh, that it is possible to 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 have a single manifestation but, but have these two opposing forces within you. Um, so um, if, you know, I, I read back my first draft before I did this and you can feel how I started. I'm, I'm just, 
I'm I'm letting the character these multiple Adams talk to each other, and I'm starting to to write my way into a form. And Adam changed a lot through the development, a lot of brilliant input from amazing people. Uh, Douglas Maxwell being one of them, who I think is doing a seminar for you. He's amazing. Um, and um, so uh, what I think is quite interesting about the way this happened, the, the play developed, is that um, uh, I ended up writing... For some of the body of this play, I would say is a memory play. And the way I would define a memory play, my understanding of a memory play is a is a um is a play which um doesn't where the characters are in a sort of place of stasis, but through the reenactment and the remembering of life events, they they change through the course of the play. I'm not a huge fan of a memory play generally. I've read a lot, you know, as a literary manager over many years, I've read a lot of memory plays that sort of leave me cold. Why are we going over these memories? You know those, you know what happened to you. Why do I, you know, as a form, it feels a bit, um, feels a bit boring to me, a bit slow, a bit meandering, a bit whimsical. Um, and and I don't think Adam is fully that because also there's this incredible coming of age story. Adam becomes a man, and I think that the trans uh, narrative is is a sort of, is a gift to a dramatist because it's the physical. You know what we all want is our characters to change dramatically over the course of a play, and and in in the trans story um, that that. Uh, transformation is manifest physically as well as internally so of course Adam already always had that structure but I think there is this form in the center which is a kind of a, a memory play form which I like to think is um you know I think that the stakes are so high for Adam stuck in this room in Glasgow uh going mad really trying to um uh, trying to prove who he is and he's stuck physically um it, it, geographically but stuck physically um but yes so that so I think it's what's quite interesting is I never would have set out to write a memory play um I didn't know the form I didn't know the question of the play um uh, and and the answers I found came through writing it I wrote my way into finding some of the themes some of the nuances the sense of antagonism between what became the two central Adams and so I suppose wanted to talk about that in, in that context, that you um, there are lots of different ways that you might want to jump into writing to starting the thing, starting the play. And it is totally valid. Uh, it's not my usual way, but it is totally valid to write your way through uh, to, to finding what that thing is. Um, and I think what uh, what is quite interesting about that is that you'll probably amass a lot more material and as I did with Adam, it is suddenly the job becomes more that of a sculptor. You get, you write your way into, you find things that are good and you've got a lot of flab and then the jobs, you've got a bigger job through the rewriting to just sort of chisel away and find the, find the gold um, shape at the heart of it. Um, but yes, that's another way you can approach it. So three different ways, hopefully one of them will chime with you and um, you. It, this might have uh, uh, whet your appetite to jump in. Um, uh, I wanted to, uh, to 
just give, share with you a quote that I really like from Tennessee Williams, who said, I believe the way to write a good play is to convince yourself it is easy to do. Then go ahead and do it with ease. Don't maul, don't suffer, don't groan till the first draft is finished. And that really resonates for me. Playwriting is a privilege. It's supposed to be fun. Um, and if you're not, if you're, if you're boring yourself, you will probably be boring us. So at this moment, when you're, when you're poised to get started, remember that, be playful. You're writing a play, be playful, have fun with it. Enjoy where it takes you. Lots of different approaches you can take. Um, but enjoy it, follow Tennessee Williams' advice. And I think it's again interesting what he says um, about don't maul, suffer or groan until the first draft is finished. He's not implying that there won't be more mauling, suffering and groaning further down the process. There will, <laughs> there undoubtedly will, as you deal with notes from every different corner and you try and make this play the best thing it can be, throwing stuff away, hoping you haven't thrown the baby out with the bathwater. So there will be suffering, but the first draft should be a joyous thing. Um, so have fun with it. Um, yeah, so that's your little uh, pep talk on getting started. You can watch or listen to all available open submissions workshops at traverse.co.uk forward slash get hyphen involved. For more information on and to support the Traverse's talent development work, visit traverse.co.uk forward slash support us. Thank you for listening.